0: Good morning. It's Friday, the 22nd of December, and this is Govind Rajatiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Before we start, as always, you can join this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube, among other streaming platforms at 6 a.m. weekdays in India. And before we start, we will be shifting gears as we take a short break from our weekday news shows for the next week. We will be hosting a series of special edition conversations Focusing on the outlook for 2024 across business, climate, economy and advertising, among others. The idea being to wrap up 2023 for you and give you a sense on what lies ahead. Do look out for these conversations. I really enjoyed doing them and I will be back with our fresh, regular, piping hot daily news, insights, views and conversations in the first week of January. Now our top stories and themes for the day... The stock markets post a surprise rebound. The Sensex jumps 945 points from its low. India's rice, wheat and onion export bans could lead to a $5 billion hit. The world's largest oil producer is now the United States of America. Garment exporters brace for higher costs as uncertainty continues on Red Sea shipping routes. The Reserve Bank of India, Bans alternative investment funds from investing in downstream debt, what it means and why. And Mumbai Delhi is the ninth busiest domestic airline route in the world.
1: This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj.
0: The surprise rebound. The Indian market saw a surprise rebound yesterday for reasons that were similar to the one that saw a surprise fall the day before. Which is that there was no real reason except the general discomfort that markets usually demonstrate and experience when they hit new peaks. And that discomfort is usually with valuations. The BSE Sensex hit an intraday low of 69,920 but jumped 945 points from there to end at 70,865, up 359 points from its previous close. The Nifty 50 closed at 21,255, up 105 points after similarly swinging down during the day. The rupee is returning to its previous state of weakness. It fell on Thursday and was at 83 rupees 25 paise against the US dollar on Thursday morning against its previous close of 83 rupees and 17 paise. Dollar demand from importers is likely to stay strong heading into the end of the year, a foreign exchange trader at a state-run bank told Reuters. India faces a roughly $5 billion hit because of food export bans. Yesterday, we spoke of how onion prices were rising across Asia thanks to India's ban on the exports of them. India has in the last year banned or curtailed exports of wheat, rice and sugar as well, of which it is the second largest producer. The impact of all of this, Reuters is reporting, is a shortfall of anywhere between 4 to $5 billion dollars this year. Worse, the Red Sea attacks may also hit basmati rice shipments. The USA is the world's largest oil producer now, and in our energy segment supported by the India Energy Week. Oil prices have paused and slipped back after rising for three days as the forces of supply clashed with sentiment on the impact of Houthi attacks on ships on the Red Sea leading to the Suez Canal. Global benchmark, that's Brent crude, hovered around $78 a barrel on Thursday, even as U.S. crude output hit a new record high of 13 million barrels a day last week, according to government data quoted by Bloomberg. And as we mentioned earlier, making it or rather making the United States the biggest producer of oil right now. So rising production from the United States, Guyana and Brazil has offset the output cuts by Saudi Arabia and the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries plus cartel. So the United States position as the world's largest oil producer, with daily output now increasing to 200,000 barrels last week, is really the highest in data going back to 1983, according to the Energy Information Administration quoted by Bloomberg. Now, this may not be a surprise for someone who follows the oil industry very closely right now, but would come as a shock to someone who does not or has not been keeping in touch in recent months, being that U.S. shale production has rocketed in a manner not anticipated also thanks to massive productivity increases at the oil fields themselves. The energy segment was supported by India Energy Week to take place on February 6th, 2024. Details are at www.IndiaEnergyWeek.com India's garment industry braces for a hit. India's garment industry, already struggling because of lower imports from markets like the United States and Europe thanks to lower demand there, is now faced with another whammy at its peak season. Right now, by the way, is peak season for garment exporters, shipping out for the spring and summer season of 2024. Now, the delays because of the Red Sea tensions and potentially increased costs are obviously not helping. Some 12% of global trade goes through the Red Sea and more than 100 container ships are already diverting and taking the long route around Africa due to fear of attacks. Back home, I reached out to Vijay Jindal, chairman of the roughly 50-year-old Gurgaon-based Garment Exporters and Manufacturers Association. And I began by asking him whether garment exporters were already experiencing any delays in their shipments and what the impact of that would be.
2: We are seeing that this will impact an increase in the freight from somewhere 30 to 40% increase in the freight prices. In the present situation, nobody is ready to pay you the extra cost. Definitely for India, especially Asian, Asian because this is the crucial route for Asian to go to Europe. Shipping lines are avoiding this route. So both things, the shipping time and the cost will affect our Q fuel export, I think, presently close to two hundred billion of the import and export is passing through this Swiss Canal, this uh, Red Sea. I think this is a big impact, and oil prices may also be affected because the oil which is coming from Russia, they are coming from this route only, and if these will be affected, presently India is buying forty percent oil is from Russia, so I think this is another threat which is going to become to the Indian, especially Indian business. Yeah.
0: So for garment and uh, apparel export, at this point of time, what are the kind of shipments that usually go out in December? I mean, normally, generally Indian season, Indian market,
2: because mostly Indians are strong in the cotton business and the summer, spring, summer business. So this is the time of spring, summer shipping, December, January, March, April. So... Definitely, it is going to increase the cost. Another 10-15 days, you will start seeing the effect of this. But I think presently, I think Indian government is intervening. Indian Navy has been deployed. And uh, India is a friend of Yemen also. And even we are not far from Iran also. So our prime minister is very actively working on it. But Q4 exports will be affected. So we have to see how much, but it will be affected.
0: At this point of time, are your shipments now getting loaded onto ships or are they being held back right now?
2: Still it is being loading, but I think the effect will start coming because definitely in the next five, seven days, 10 days we will start seeing some of the effect. presently everybody is hopeful that some result may come, some will come because most many of other countries has also, deploying their forces in this Red Sea, they are giving the guarantees to the shipper, to the shipping lines that will provide them security, they should go through this route.
0: But we have to see it, because it is the start, we have to see how it will impact. So normally, when there are delays because of, so earlier we had a problem when the Suez Canal was closed because there was a ship that got stuck, or it got grounded, evergreen. so. Uh, in situations like that or here when there is violence, who bears the cost? Is it the shipping company or is it the... No, no, no. Actually,
2: because export is generally, we are doing FOB business. But the final cost, when some buyers look at the final cost, they're taking in effect the freight, then the duties, so then the local cost. The total, they take their landing cost. When the increase in the freight will happen then the lending cost will increase. And what will they do? They will start reducing our FOB prices. It is going to hit us because they are looking for their targets, their landed
0: targets. But you, you're you saying that will it'll take 10-15 days for that, that thing to flow back, I mean, the cost and, and everything to flow back.
2: Presently, what we are shipping is the order already been booked two months back, two to three months back, and the prices has been closed, and we are shipping at the FOB, so at presently we are not affecting but if it take long time then it will start affecting our cost but presently the goods which has been booked on the cnf prices those are already been affected because the freight prices has started increasing
0: so what is the impact suppose i don't know how you measure it but if you can explain to us is it per shipment i mean the cost that you will like if suppose the cost goes up you said that there could be a 30-40% to 40% increase in freight. So what could be the impact on one container or one shipment that you send or any normal garment exporter sends?
2: Presently, we are shipping per piece. Our cost is per piece. Suppose it's a piece, $5 it is costing us. Because of this increase in the freight, will impact us depending upon the tile, depending upon the weight of the style, then I think maybe somewhere 2 to 3 percent, 4 percent, it should be affect our cost per piece.
0: Earlier, I'd seen there was a report where you had talked about how production in some parts of uh, India had uh, slowed down. And I think you had you had spoken about Delhi NCR garment units holding production. Uh, this was in July. So ha- has that changed? Uh, I mean, have things improved since then or... Is this situation uh, making it worse?
2: No, still, the situation is almost the same because uh, presently the recession is still going in U.S., Europe. So, the present business is 30 to 40% drop in the overall business. So, government trade is, I think, badly affected because of this uh, wars, because of this recession in U.K., U.S., Europe, U.K., everywhere. So, it is still not improved. This is always considered to be the best season for Indian garment exporters. This spring summer presently we are at 16 billion initially when the year started it was targeting we may touch 18 to 20 billion dollar but i see even us to achieve our last year target will
0: also be a problem. Vijay Jindal uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Very broadly speaking, garments, like any other goods exports, can be either free on board or FOB, which means the buyer accepts the title of the goods at the shipment point and assumes all risk once the seller ships the product. If the deal is on CIF basis, then the seller bears the cost, insurance and freight, which is what CIF abbreviates to. The Alternate Investment Fund Crackdown The Reserve Bank of India a few days ago directed banks and non-bank finance companies or NBFCs to liquidate their holdings in the not-so-tightly regulated Alternate Investment Funds or AIFs, which in turn have downstream investment in debtor companies. What does that mean? Well, we'll come to that. The AIFs were essentially buying loans that the NBFC had made to a third entity, which had a probability of going bad. AIFs are regulated by the Securities and Exchange Board of India, while NBFCs are regulated by the Reserve Bank. Last year, SEBI had raised a flag about AIFs and such investments. AIFs usually have smaller groups of usually more risk-bearing investors. A handful of non-bank finance companies, including IIFL Finance, have already declared that they had invested in AIFs and were winding it down. So what does this exactly mean? And what were these NBFCs up to via this intriguing-sounding route of investments? I reached out to Jyoti Prakash Gardia, Managing Director at Resurgent India, an investment bank, and I began by asking you to define, firstly, what an AIF was in this context and what the Reserve Bank of India was cracking down on.
1: I will just explain to you in detail. Let me first, uh, let me start explaining you what this AIF concept is all about. AIF is like a special purpose vehicle. Where there is not so much of rules and regulations which are governed by the Reserve Bank of India or the SEBI guidelines for the NPA norms which are getting implemented in AIF actually. AIF make their own rules and regulations when their account will be termed NPA, where they can invest money, what sort of asset class they can invest in. SEBI has just broadly categorized that it can be AIF1, AIF2 or AIF3 category depending upon the asset class where you can invest and whether you want to raise debt or not against those funding that you are trying to do. So there is some broader guidelines applicable, but there is no minor guidelines. So all those nitty-gritties and operational issues are being framed by the AIF management itself, which are the investment managers who are managing that fund. It is like a type of a mutual fund. Where all the investors or the HNIs they generally give money to the investment manager. Where investment managers goes and pitch up their case. I am going to invest in this type of asset classes. This would be my investment rational. This is the investment return. This would be the horizon of my AIF and everything. And in case if those HNIs or the investors are convinced about the capability and the investment team of that, we call it as a general partners or those investment managers. Then those HNIs give that money and this is the way that all the AIFs are created and they give money with So, this is on a broader aspect. Now, what was happening? Now, suppose I give you an instant case. what is now happening. Now, suppose if an NBFC or a bank has an NP asset. Now, suppose if I make an AIF, bank will come and say, me, Jyoti, you have an AIF, I will give you money in that AIF. But what you will do with that money that I'm giving you as an AIF, you purchase my NP asset and you keep it in your books of account. And as an AIF, I don't have to follow that 180 days guidelines or SMA 1, sme 2, SMA 3 guidelines which was happening. Basically, this problem didn't arise more from the Nationalized Bank. This problem arise more from the NBFC angle. What the NBFCs were basically doing was that the NBFCs, in case if their account become an NP account, then those NBFCs will create an AIF, maybe through a different management structure or maybe through friends or maybe through any other AIF who has bond, those AIF must have approached those NBFCs, keep, brother, why don't you invest in my AIF? So NBFC will say, okay, I will invest in your AIF provided you purchase this asset after you have raised the money from me. So it is basically parking of those NP assets to an AIF structure where that asset can be parked through 5-year, 8-year, 10-year down the road and thereafter the AIF can write off the asset slowly and gradually depending upon that management principle which was happening there. So this was an opaque book basically and this NPA recognition norm since it was not applicable to AIF, what the NBFC used to do NBFC NBFC used to show that this much is the investment which I hold in my AIF and AIF since they have not recognized that asset as an NPA asset so their net asset value was always high because the valuation of the asset that the AIF was holding it is basically as per the net asset value and since AIF has not recognized that as an NPA so they have not diminished the value of that investment like so suppose if they have purchased a 100 rupees asset which is an NPA asset which practically should have been recorded at zero value, but AIF record in their books of account, they will record it at 100 rupees. So their NAV value will always show 100 rupees. And in that NBFC, since they have invested in that AIF, they will always show that as an investment by 100% investment is intact as per the market value. So everything was going on very, very good. NBFC, they were not having any problem because they don't have to write up the books of account. And this AIF, Since AIF structure is like that, they also get money from the NBFC structure. So everything was going on fine.
0: So conceptually, you're saying, but there was a problem with that part of the loan, right? Even while it may have been transferred to the AIF, the fact is that that part of that loan or that part of the book had gone bad, isn't it?
1: Correct. Absolutely correct. There can be two situations. One, there can be already an NPA return account or it can be an SMA 1-2 account or NBFC can foresee that this account will become bad in the next six months of time.
0: So now the Reserve Bank is saying that you can't do this and you can't have this kind of downstream investment. So what is the outcome of this going to be? I mean, what will NBFCs have to do?
1: I will just explain in detail what RBI has now come up. RBI is saying NBFC or bank, they cannot invest in the unit of those AIFs. In case if those AIF is reinvesting again in the asset of those lend any of those assets where same bank or NBFC has lended money to, it means there cannot be any round tripping. It means NBFC, if they have invested to a borrower A and NBFC has lended money in AIF B, suppose. So now AIF B cannot invest in borrower A. This is the guideline which says
0: many of the NBFCs having to now reveal their investments in AIFs which have such exposure and therefore having to now unload?
1: Absolutely. I think so. There will be like two or three bigger NBFCs in the country. Definitely since whatever that they have formed in terms of an AIF structure and they have parked the bad loan in some way or the other into that AIF. So now RBI is saying either NBFC has to sell those assets or those units within 30 days or AIF has to dispose of that asset or AIF has to recognize that asset. It means either the value of that AIF investment will go down or otherwise the NBFC or bank, which is holding those units, they have to sell those units within the next 30 days of time frame. So you will see that there will be a lot of hunky-dory which is going to happen in this next 30 days where a lot of AIF investment value will come down and three, four NBFCs wherever those investments are there. Definitely, those they have to come out clean with that, and I think so. I, unofficially, I know that this is going on for last one year, but so it was about to come at any point of time.
0: Right, and yeah, exactly. And that's sort of my last question because some names are already coming out. So, is the Reserve Bank reacting because it feels the problem is something has already happened and some other bigger default is likely to happen, or is it just anticipating that this is a method that's not ideal or that's it's not appropriate and therefore? you know, cracking down in this manner.
1: NBFC is a regulated body by Reserve Bank of India and AIF is a regulated body by SEBI. Practically what has happened, these are the two different institutions practically governed by two different governors or two different institutions. So problem has occurred because since there was no one governing authority for both the institutions. So this is basically the root cause of the problem. But when the RBI came to know this problem, that this can be a problem area happening. So I think so, RBI and the SEBI has both sat together and tried to form some new rules and regulations. That should be the way for forward for AIF. I think so, Reserve Bank of India and SEBI should form a joint committee in making the rules and regulations for AIF and for any of the fundraising entity going further, sir. It can't be ki, sir, SEBI kuch not or RBI kuch bana hai, sir. It can't be in isolation, both of them, sir.
0: Right, and Sebi had pointed this out earlier as well, and now Reserve Bank has uh, stepped in. Jyoti, Gaudiya, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Govinda.
0: Jet setting from Mumbai to Delhi. Mumbai to Delhi is the ninth busiest domestic airline route in the world, with 7.2 million seats, latest triggers from flight data analytics company OAG has revealed. Mumbai Delhi was preceded by Jeddah to Riyadh. Incidentally, the busiest domestic route in the world is Jeju to Seoul, both in South Korea, with about 14 million seats or twice as much as the Mumbai Delhi sector. Meanwhile, the one-hour flight between Singapore in Singapore and Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia was the world's busiest international route this year. And amongst busiest airports, Atlanta is the world's busiest airport in 2023, followed by Dubai, Tokyo, London Heathrow, and Dallas, Texas. The only new entrant in the year's top 10 airports list was the 10th placed Guangzhou in China, according to OAG, and that was 16th or number 16 in 2022. On that note, and hoping that you don't land up in one of these busiest airports and missing a flight, here's wishing you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and a Happy New Year ahead. And look out for our daily news report that resumes in the new year. That was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the and thank you once again for listening.